It's showtime, folks. Son now. Ali to the left. Son on a mission to go alone. This is sensational. World class. We got a great show today. We're going to go over the boxing this week and bring in our boxing expert, Achilles Rain. Uh, and then I'm going to touch on the World Series a little bit and its conclusion. And then we're going to have our movie expert, Rita Cinema, in to review the film Rebecca and touch on the passing of Sean Connery and our five favorite films from Sean Connery. All right. Let's get in on the boxing this weekend. There was some great fights before we bring in Achilles Reign. I'm going to touch on a couple of the uh, undercard fights and a a heavyweight fight that was in England. Uh, Alexander Juszczyk, the big-time cruiserweight champion who's moved up to heavyweight, had a nice win versus Derek Chioza, the heavyweight contender for probably the last 10 to 15 years. Good win. Uh, Yusek didn't look like he's quite ready to bang with the big boys and heavyweight just yet. Um, but his, you can see his fight skills are there, and he dominated Chorza, who's got some pop, and Yusek uh, was able to stick with him. So it'll be nice to see uh, how he progresses in the heavyweight division. Um, really, he's probably the best technical boxer uh other than Tyson Fury in that division right now so if he can somehow figure a way to put on a little more weight and uh get his power to the point where the heavyweights at least feel it when he hits them I look for a good future for uh USEC. so that was good uh, also on the undercards of the big fights On the uh, Davis-Santa Cruz undercard, uh, Regis Pagracias, um, who was an up-and-coming prospect, uh, did miss weight this fight, but did look good. Uh, he had a narrow loss to Josh Taylor, the probably the best at uh, 140. So he bounced back, looked great. Um, don't know what's in the cards for him to fight. Um, maybe he can get a rematch with Taylor. Uh, they... Taylor has a big fight with Jose Ramirez coming up. Maybe the winner or the loser of that one can fight him. Maurice Hooker looks like a definite chance to fight him, and uh, that would be an interesting fight. But uh, in the undercard, I thought he was 
pretty explosive and looked pretty good coming off a loss. Okay, and now we're going to bring in our man Achilles Rain to talk about the two big fights on the weekend. All right, we're bringing in our man Achilles Rain to talk about the fights on Saturday. It was a action-packed weekend. Uh, none of them really went to the scorecards. So uh, let's touch on the uh, bantamweight bout with a Naori Inyo. Uh, pretty uh, easy contest for him. It was a pretty lopsided fight, but uh, he had been out for about a year and a half uh, with um, some shoulders problems and uh, looked good coming back. Uh, beat Jason Maloney, a fringe contender, and. Uh, Beat him up for about seven rounds and then uh, caught him with a pretty good shot there at the end. Uh, looked good, uh, and uh, he's easily the best bantamweight. Um, what do you make of the fight? I think overall it was a pretty entertaining fight. Uh, I don't think that the outcome was anything that people weren't expecting. Uh, he was the favorite going in. He was a pretty, pretty heavy favorite and uh, kind of showed why with his uh, dominant performance. Uh, it looked to be uh, pretty one-sided for the most part, but uh, overall, I think he stepped up, uh, especially after having that time off, and uh, he took care of business. That's what he had to do. Yeah, uh, some future fights I think could uh, be on the cards. Uh, Nordino Babale, who uh, beat his brother uh, a little earlier and has a fight against Nodito, Nonito Donaire, the uh, longtime uh, bantamweight guy who's been around for, I don't know, I think since I was in high school, but still fighting strong. Uh, the winner of that fight, uh, either uh, Inyo will probably uh, go with a rematch versus Nodito Donaire if he can find a win there, or uh, Olabale uh, probably will step up, and uh, that should be a good fight. Uh, I've watched Olabale fight a couple times, and uh, he's probably easily the second-best fighter in that division, and if he can continue to stay on weight, he's a little bigger than uh, Inyo, so uh could be an interesting fight there, and uh, look forward to a couple of fights uh, going on in the uh, – Pretty low weight classes. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely looks like uh, it has the potential to be a good fight. Uh, that probably wasn't the fight that I was most excited about that particular Saturday night, but uh, it was still a good fight to watch. It was good to see him come back and perform the way he did after that uh, layoff he had. But, you know, going forward, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what plays out in this division. Um, but it, it, it looks promising, at least. Yeah. All right, so we'll move to the big-time fight. Uh, Javante Davis took on uh, Leo Santa Cruz, moving up two weight classes to try to claim his uh, fifth title belt. Um, The fight went pretty much like I thought. Santa Cruz came out there and put the pressure on him and was throwing punches, and uh, Davis seemed to get a little frustrated early but uh, was able to sort of stand in there, and uh, he got that one shot off, and he showed he had the power, uh, even though it was you know, a lighter weight guy, but uh, I was pretty impressed with the way Javante Davis fought in this fight. Yeah, it was uh, definitely impressive, uh, especially, you know, going up against uh, the, 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 the champ who was basically established uh, compared to these two fighters, Javante Davis's first headline pay-per-view. So uh, it was interesting to see what, 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 how he was going to handle the situation in the moment, but uh, he came out pretty confident. It looked like uh, he had a pretty good training camp and, you know, he had his uh, his mentor made weather with, with him, which I'm sure kind of uh, eased his nerves a little bit. Uh, but I overall, he ca- mentor in quotes, I think his uh, <laughs> promoter who's getting rich off of him 
who's learned how to make money the real way in the fight game by not fighting and just making it off a bunch of fighters. Listen, we're we're gonna be respectful about uh about Mayweather's uh, money scheme here, but we're gonna call him a mentor. <clears throat> but, probably the third time he's probably met the guy. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure he's he shot a few text messages and a few emails his way. You know, welcome to the camp, welcome to my gym. But uh, you know, I, I think that uh, you know he handled his first uh, headline pay per view pretty well. Um, I I was a little astonished when I was looking at the at the scorecards. I, I kind of thought that uh, Cruz was doing a little bit better early on, uh, but the judges didn't really think uh, didn't really agree with me. It looked like they had uh, Davis kind of winning pretty decisively, uh, except for I think it was that second round yeah. where uh, Cruz kind of. Uh, took a little bit of a lead, but overall, you know, you, you could kind of see why people didn't want him to take this fight. Um, there was a lot to lose, not so much to gain, but, you know, they put on a good performance. Yeah, it was a really exciting fight, and I, I can't say enough about uh, Leo Santa Cruz uh, stepping up uh, essentially two divisions. His one fight in the 130s was versus nobody. I mean, he's a 126-pound guy who was fighting a 135-pound guy who is quickly going to move up out of uh, 135 pounds and contend in 140 and uh, 148, I'm sure of it. So uh, he just, I thought he fought well coming out early, being aggressive, you know what he does. He just didn't seem to have the power to that made Davis not want to stick in that pocket. And Davis sort of took all he could, looked for that one shot, hit that one shot, and the fight was over. I was a little disappointed in the scorecards, but um, it didn't really matter because it didn't get to the scorecards. Yeah, you know you know what they say. You, you don't want it to go to the judges, and this is probably a prime example of it uh, because I kind of thought that uh, Santa Cruz was doing uh, more work. I thought he was fighting better. I thought he was kind of managing his range a lot better than Davis was. Uh, but, you know, it seemed like after that second round, Davis started focusing on the body a lot more. He started uh, giving more body shots, and it really seemed to slow down uh, the pace at which uh, Santa Cruz was fighting at. And, you know, as the rounds progressed, you could see him slowing down a little bit, and all those body shots seemed to take effect because once he landed that uh, that uppercut to end the fight, you know, it was it's almost like he was trying to protect the body more than anything. Yeah. Uh so let's uh, look at the future and what we got coming up with the, uh, these two. Uh, where do you think uh, Javante Davis goes here? Uh, stays at 135. Uh, it looks like Tilefimo Lopez is going to move up to 140. That would probably be the biggest fight that could be make it 135. But there are a handful of other uh, 135 guys out there for him to fight. Uh, Devin Haney's one. And uh, Lee Selby, I thought, would be a good matchup, though he's a little old. Uh, what were you looking at at 135? Uh, you know, they still have guys like uh, Ryan Garcia, uh, Lope, uh, Tio Lopez Jr., uh, Shakur Stevenson. There's, there's, there's some guys in that division that are, uh, you know, they have, they have the possibility to be a big payday. Uh, but I think ultimately he's probably going to kind of try to follow the, the, uh, the example of his uh, – I guess we'll call him mentor just for just for the sake of the show, um, and try and go after the uh, the big ticket fights, the ones that are going to put more money in his in his bank account. Um, boxing 
isn't as popular as it used to be, unfortunately, you know, even though it's still um, a great, a great sport. Well, they in suckered $75 out of me still. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you, you're a, you're a sports uh, fanatic, so it doesn't matter what it is. If you have to pay for it, you're probably going to pay for it. So uh, I was able to piggy bank off of your pay-per-view and uh, enjoy the fight. But yeah, I, I think that, his best bet is probably to stay where he's at right now. Uh, he seems to have the uh, power advantage against most fighters. And, uh, you know, he proves it with his, uh, with his knockout record. But he might just end up having to go for the bigger payday, whatever uh, weight, that, weight division that might be. Yeah, so uh, if he goes up to 140, 148, do you think that power continues to carry there or it starts to level out? Well, I think that he still has really good power. You know, he's a, he's a strong fighter, he's a strong puncher. Um, and he seems to be getting better as he progresses. He's still, he's still young, you know, he still has a long way to go before he hits his prime. Um, but I think it levels off a little bit, uh, the higher you go, especially with some of the boxers in the other division. So I think that his best bet as far as, uh, you know, keeping that, the win, tally going is probably a stick in this division. Yeah. I think he'll I think he'll definitely stick around longer than uh Tilafimo Lopez, who I think is already moving up to one forty. Uh where does Leo Santa Cruz go from here? I'm hoping he moves back down. Uh I thought a Vesali Lomachenko fight sort of loser takes all after Vesali's sort of poor performance versus Tilafimo Lopez. Put those two together. Definitely would be a fun fight to watch, but uh, I think he probably definitely needs to take a little time off first uh, after a knockout like that. Yeah, that was a, it was a devastating knockout. It was a little, you know, I don't want to say scary because this is boxing. This is what, what the sport is, but it was a little scary. You know, uh, he kind of stayed on the mat for a little bit and he wasn't really moving. It wasn't until we, uh, the camera angle got in closer and we saw that he was breathing that we could tell he was going to be fine. But, you know, he, it's probably one of the worst uh, knockouts that we've had over the last couple of years or so, as far as uh, the talent goes, you know, a big name guy. I think that he needs to take some time off. Uh, doesn't really need to change much. Cause he was fighting. He was fighting a good fight. It was just, he, you know, he got caught to the body so much and then that uppercut kind of caught him out of nowhere and it was just a perfect punch. Uh, so I think he just needs to kind of clear his head you know, get through this loss and uh, come back just as he always has and, and just fight his fight. You know, he's, he's a good fighter. Yeah. I, I didn't think he looked worn or washed or anything in the fight. He just, you know, sometimes you get caught. He got caught. Well, it'll definitely be interesting to see how he backs back, bounces back from being caught like this. I mean, his only other loss was a decision loss to Frampton and he bounced back and uh, came uh, right back and won a, pretty easy uh fight and got the knockout there but uh this is a different kind of loss where you know it it'll be interesting to see how he bounces back from it yeah i'm I'm interested to see it also like you said that other loss was the decision loss and this was a loss by knockout not just knockout but pretty devastating a knockout so um hopefully he he can kind of get past this and come back uh as strong as he was you know, I, I don't foresee any issues, but in the fighting game, you never know. Sometimes when you get dropped, that's kind of the end of you. Yeah, the only thing I'd worry about is uh, I don't know if he 
once you put on weight like he did, he put on a lot of muscle to get up to 135 and to drop back down to like 130. Uh, I think 126 is completely out of the question now, but to drop back down to like 130 and fight, uh, I think might harm him a little bit. You see that a lot, guys who bump up and then try to go back down. It sort of sucks your energy. So I'd be a little worried about that, but uh, I, I hope he bounces back and uh, we get a couple more good fights because I've really enjoyed watching Leo Santa Cruz fight uh, for the past uh, probably about eight years or so now. Yeah, I couldn't have said it any better. Uh, I completely agree with that statement. Um, I, I just hope he, he comes back as strong as he was. Uh, I wouldn't jump down that that far down because, <laughs> like you said, he put on a lot of weight for this fight. And sometimes that changes people, and especially after such a pretty devastating loss. I, I, I just want to see him come back. He's an entertaining fighter, and uh, I want to see him fight some more. Yeah. All right. So that does it for our boxing segment of the week. Uh, Achilles, thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll have you back on Friday. Uh, we're making you jump around on many hats this week. Uh, we got you on football as always, but we're also going to touch on the uh, NBA draft coming up on Friday. So it's a fun week for you with lots of hats. Oh yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> Thanks for having me. All right, bud. All right. So let's get into some baseball. The Dodgers won the world series for the first time since 1988 I was really excited about that. I became a Dodgers fan in about 1989 when Daryl Strawberry signed over there as a free agent. And then they, through the mid-90s with Hideo Nomo and Raul Mondesi and Eric Karros and Mike Piazza and Chano Park and Darren Dreifert and a bunch of other guys, I just sort of was always a big Dodger fan. But as I got later in life, I've sort of fandom for teams has waned, especially as, you know, I got more and more into sports gambling. You sort of lose interest in one team and become more on in love with who you have that weekend. But uh, it was great to see the Dodgers win. Now on that front, this analytic nonsense into baseball that pretty much let the Dodgers win this World Series as Blake Snell was cruising, cruising to a, you know, complete game shutout of this Dodger team. And why? Because one guy gets a single. The manager feels the need to take out a starting pitcher who won the Cy Young just the previous year and is one of the best pitchers in the American League and in baseball overall. I will not understand and... It's the reason why baseball is not in the same level as football or basketball right now because it's being run by a bunch of math nerds up top who think everything is a statistic. Now, I am not against analytics. I love analytics, and I love crunching numbers. But when you have to pull a guy who has 9Ks through five innings and has destroyed the top of that Dodgers order because the math tells you to put in a guy who had given up a run for five straight games in a game deciding. It's just ridiculous. And this is pretty much the problem with baseball now. And it will always be the problem with baseball now. But that's just the way it is. So baseball's sort of my... I watch it, but I don't watch it like I used to. And... 
seems like that will continue this way. But uh, congratulations to the Dodgers, and we'll see what they throw out next season. If there is going to be a season, I'm guessing there's probably going to be some labor strife. So let's go into our movie review with Rita Cinema. Hey, and we're going to go to our movie review now. We have with us our movie cinephile, Rita Cinema, in the studio. This week we're going to discuss the film Rebecca, the Netflix version, not the 1940s Alfred Hitchcock version, but we might touch on the 1940s version before we move in to the Netflix version of 2020. All right, so what were your thoughts uh, about them remaking this movie first off? Well, when I heard that there was going to be a new version of Rebecca coming to Netflix, I was, in a word, surprised. And I was also a little excited since the um, 1938 gothic mystery novel by Daphne du Maurier is a favorite of mine. Um, however, the novel has been adapted for screen, stage, and TV numerous times. I even read there has been an opera. So I was a little skeptical about the need for another adaptation. Uh, I was particularly wary of a new version starring Army Hammer and Lily James in the lead roles. Um, both pleasant, but neither acting heavyweights in my mind. Um, so in the end, I was not sure what this new Rebecca would bring to the table. And frankly, I think it brings nothing new to the table. <laughs> well, I think we probably both agree on that. Uh, the uh, first version did win the Academy Award in 1940. Uh, it was Alfred Hitchcock's a first United States film and uh, really his first true big budget film. Uh, it was a Seldenic production. He brought Alfred Hitchcock over from Great Britain, and uh, this was his first true big hit. It cost about a million dollars to make, and it made $6 million in the box office. So in like today's term, that would be like a $20 million movie grossing about $112 million. So it it shows you what a big hit the uh, 1940s version on, and it really spurned on Alfred Hitchcock's career. He went on to, in that whole decade, make Suspicion, Saboteur, Shadow of a Doubt, Lifeboat, Spellbound, Notorious, The Pardine Case, and Rope, all in that decade. So he just really unlocked uh, Alfred Hitchcock, and uh, the film was... Probably one of my favorites uh, when I go back and watch one of the Hitchcock ones. Not my very favorite, but definitely in a top ten of uh, Alfred Hitchcock movies. And uh, Laurence Olivier was just great in the uh, original film. So, what did you make of the 1940s movie? I know you've spent well, the last two I, weeks... I have several things to say about it. As catching I, up no, into... I, I, the, I have several things to, to compare as I go through my review, but, you know, just to start out, it obviously any new film of Rebecca is going to have to compete with Alfred Hitchcock's classic um, that earned the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1940, as you said. Um uh, frankly, I think Netflix would have been better off purchasing the rights to the Hitchcock film instead of making this little film. Um, but I'll tell you, in all fairness, there are a few, a few positive notes I can make about the 2020 Rebecca. And actually, I think, I don't know, for, for viewers, for people 
who are not familiar with the earlier film, the Hitchcock, and, uh, or any of the film or TV versions, or haven't read the novel, um, maybe this new Rebecca will work. Um, it might be entertaining. Um, but frankly, I think, I sort of doubt it will rise above just okay. Um, for those who do not know the story, um, this is about a young, naive, and shy newlywed, who the narrator, Mrs. De Winter, who arrives at her husband's, she meets him in Monte Carlo, they have a whirlwind romance, and then they get married and they arrive at her husband's, Max De Winter, the imposing family estate Manderley, on a windswept English coast, um, and finds herself battling the shadow and overpower, overpowering personality of his beautiful first wife, Rebecca, whose legacy lives on in the, uh, in the house despite her death. Um, and the new Mrs. De Winter must also contend with a very unfriendly and even sinister housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers, who in this version is played uh, deftly by Kristen Scott Thomas. Um, now, the, I said I have some positives to say. I think this new Rebecca has beautiful scenery, and it gives a very Downton Abbey-like picture of British country living that people are sort of tuned into now because of the PBS program. Um, I actually thought Hammer and James were not too bad in their roles, though neither stretches very far. Um, as I mentioned, I think Kristen Scott Thomas stands out in this cast as Mrs. Danvers, though I actually didn't think she quite hit the mark either. Um, she has a perfect touch of... Uh, severity and condescension toward the new Mrs. De Winter. Um, but she didn't quite convey, at least for me, enough of the sinister evil quality. And I didn't feel like there was this underlying madness existing there that you could just feel lurking and ready to spring. And I don't think anyone can beat Judith Anderson's portrayal um, in the Hitchcock version of the evil Mrs. Danvers. She puts the evil touch on it, and you really do feel that madness um, lurking there. Um, if I, if you want me to uh, go ahead and comment on the other cast members. Well, uh, I was just going to interject I, here. I thought the women were not bad. Uh, they held their roles. I thought they played their parts pretty well. Uh, the Army Hammer part was the one that I probably had the most trouble with. That and sort of the direction of the film. Uh, the guy they got to do it uh, sort of put in some horror tropes in there that I didn't think totally belonged in there. The, you know, dream sequences possibly drove me just insane, especially when they, they sort of take out the window sequences from the original Hitchcock one where she thinks she's seeing essentially a ghost up in the window and they replace it with this slow motion dream sequence of, you know, a guy who's probably seen too many John Woo and Michael Bay films in his day and, you know, just sticks them in there in, you know, horror trope fashion. And this isn't necessarily a horror film. It's a thriller film. It's, you know, a romantic thriller film. It's a suspenseful mystery. Yes. <laughs> and so I didn't like that. And, uh, the ending, uh, where Miss Danvers, you know, jumps off the cliff and we get the water dive scene. While the water dive scene looks cool as she's floating to the abyss of the bottom of the sea, it it just, uh, I think you like to see that scene where she burns the house down and she's sort of standing in it, watching it as it burns. And you, 
you don't necessarily see her die in the uh, Hitchcock one, but, you know, the flames are engulfing, and it's... I think that sort of makes the movie, and this I just... I didn't like the direction the director took, and I, I also just... Army Hammer. Um, it just... I can't be on board. I don't know what I've liked of his that he's done, but uh, this one sort of is in another one of I don't really like what I'm seeing on screen from him. Yeah. Um, Hammer, uh, though he's uh, Army Hammer, though he's quite the treat to look at, ladies, um, he just lacked depth as a trouble, self-absorbed husband and lord of Manderley. I mean, that's what you want. Well, that... uh, you know, trying to also you have the Lawrence Olivier thing right. sort of holding over his head that, you know, it's going to be impossible to match up. But uh, I just sort of wish they had gotten a better uh, actor for this role. Well, I also th- thought um, that they needed an older actor because there's supposed to be a fair amount of difference in their ages. Um, and that's... Uh, you, you really don't see that in this version. I mean, Lily James and Army Hammer are not that far apart in age. And so I thought they needed an older actor to portray Max DeWinter. Now, I thought Lily James pulled off her role as the young Mrs. DeWinter uh, pretty well. Um, she grows from a shy, clumsy young woman to one who's more confident and who will stand up for herself and fight for her husband when the time comes to do so. Um, and I think the, the, the more contemporary treatment of this female character's growth is quite welcome because um, even in the, in the Hitchcock version that I liked, um, while Joan Fontaine, who played Mrs. DeWinter, you do see some growth in her strength and confidence, she's still a small character and a small person compared to the, uh, you know, uh, the men, Max, and the other male roles. And, you know, of course... Um, the Hitchcock film starring, you know, Lawrence Olivier as Max, um, you know, he was just bigger than life because he was such uh, a, a, um, a respected and, you know, just, um, well, you know, his, his acting chops are huge. Yes. I'll just say it in the slang way that, you know, he, it's going to be pretty hard to, to outdo what Lawrence Well, Olivier that was the, the one thing I did sort of like in the film is they sort of grew uh, the female character. Right. Uh she goes from sort of a, well, I mean, she's a servant, essentially. And then she essentially becomes a confident woman who's going to cover up a murder into this one. Whereas in the other one, she sort of grows in confidence and protects her husband. But this one, she's full bore. She's out to <laughs> save him, boy. Yeah. She's in, you know, Definitely. full mode of, yeah. I don't care what he's done. We're going We're gonna to work this <laughs> out. Yeah. So I did sort of like that take. Yeah, I did too. And slant. And it's a, it's a little more in, in line with current thinking, you know, in terms of women's roles in, in the world. Um, to be honest, nothing rises to the top in this new version. I think it's kind of an average remake. Um, I, uh, of, uh, you know, it's, they, they made it sort of a melodramatic murder mystery story. Um, however, I, the, I agree with you on the dream sequences. What were they thinking um, they're ridiculous. They're a distraction. And I actually found myself laughing, thinking, why did they put this in? It doesn't add to the movie at all. It takes away from it. And the end sequence, the end sequence there with Mrs. Danvers is so um, untrue to the original story that I just hated yeah, it. it. They didn't need to do that. It just took away from it. 
you know, if you read the novel, and um, it it may seem like just this murder mystery story, but it's actually a very complex story um, when you look deep into it, a jealousy murder, um, the whole story of Manderley and the you know, Rebecca's personality still hovering there and everything. And to tell you the truth, you know, if you look at the Hitchcock film, it's not exactly like the novel. It, too, is an adaptation. Um, But he really did make it into a more complex story, and he built the suspense around this theme of jealousy and murder, and he did a masterful job. Um, He uses music and lighting and shadows and the performances of the cast, and they all feed into the overall effect of the, the Hitchcock movie and, um, and of course, the ending, you know, the way he, he ended it. Um, you know, every film version, every TV version, every version of Rebecca is always going to beg uh, comparison with the Hitchcock version. Even though it's 80 years old, it stands, you know, the test uh, of time. And as I said, I thought, you know, Hitchcock's film um, really is a, uh, a suspense film, around a love story, and I felt like this one was a love story with a little mystery and suspense thrown in. Yeah, uh, definitely. I did want to give a little shout-out to the uh, cinematographer and the editor of the new film. Yes, I think it looks great, and, you know, even though I dislike the dream sequence and the water sequence, they also looked cool. They just sort of weren't in line with the story. So. You know, if for a five-minute clip on YouTube, it would have been perfectly cool to look at. For the film, I did not love it, but uh, Lori Rose and Jonathan Amos were the uh, cinematographer and editor of the film, and I really did like the way it looked, but that was probably about the extent of what I enjoyed about the movie. Well, I I could recommend it if you just wanted to sit down and watch an okay movie on Netflix, you know, you're looking for something new to watch. Um, I can tell you, an intri- just, um, I don't think I could watch it a second time. <laughs> I won't watch it again, and yet I have watched the Hitchcock version many times. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to our overall grade. What did you have as your... One through ten ranking, one being the clockwork orange torture scene, the number five watchable, and ten drop everything and watch now. I gave it a five, barely a five. (laughs) I went one below, and I went with a four on this one. Uh, I think if you're bored and have nothing to do, it's probably worth a watch. It's a nice way to eat about an hour and a half, two hours, but it wouldn't be something I'd regret never seeing in my life now if you have the opportunity uh i would suggest watching the 1940s one yes (laughs) preferably before you watch this one well actually i'd like to know from someone at some point i think i told you this if you've never read the novel you aren't familiar with the story you haven't seen any of the earlier versions including the hitchcock version and you sit down to watch this do you find it entertaining i you know it's really hard when you've already seen all the other you know you've read the book and you've seen all these other uh, you know versions of it and then another one like this comes along it's just hard to like it it's just average yeah all right so uh sad news over the weekend sean connery passed away so i thought we'd do a little tribute to sean connery and uh i thought we'd give our five favorite films of the sean connery era and uh talk about what you liked about sean connery a little bit 
You want me to start? You start. Okay. Well, that it was really hard for me to pick five films. Um, for one thing, I have to admit, while I absolutely love Sean Connery, he's one of my favorite actors, um, I hadn't seen most of his films in a little while, so I picked... Well, he stopped acting in 2003, Well, so. but I mean, a lot of the movies that I really liked are pretty old at this point, and I haven't seen them in a while. But I went back through, and, uh, and let me just say that I could probably just list five Bond movies and well, be done I with it. Well, I was but trying to make sure we that. limited that. I, I'm not going to do that. I, um, but here are my top five, and they aren't really in any order. That's too hard. And I kind of have a few honorable mentions, too. Um, my top five were Goldfinger, um, The Man Who Would Be King, uh, From Russia With Love, The Hunt for oh. Red October, and The Untouchables. Uh, my honorable mentions were Indiana Jones and the Last Group to Say, and it was really hard not to put that one in my top five. The Rock, Marnie, and The Name of the Rose. And I can't decide if I like The Name of the Rose because I liked it as a Sean Connery movie or because I really liked the novel. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say sort of you not necessarily having seen a, all these Sean Connery movies or, you know, in a long time. It sort of speaks to him. I don't think he was the greatest actor. I mean, he, I think he's probably what you'd call a movie star. I, you put his name on the billboard, you see him in a scene and he's a movie star. I, he only won one Academy award. And that was, you know, the other thing is I think some of his best roles were, was he, he's a supporting actor. And mm -hmm. that's and, probably true, you know? And so I think he's more a movie star than I'd go down as a great thespian of the theater wise but uh i always loved him in film so my top five uh number five was zardoz the uh sci-fi epic uh sort of for modern people if uh dune and uh mad max had a child it probably would be zardoz <laughs> Uh, also, if you want to see the impact of Star Wars, go watch this and see what sci-fi films were before uh, Star Wars came out. Uh, From Russia with Love was easily my favorite Bond movie, and uh, probably my favorite Bond movie, though, Casino Royale, is pretty close. Marnie, uh, as we're in the Hitchcock phase, is my number three. And my last two are Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and The Untouchables at number one. Uh, I love The Untouchables. Now, some honorable mentions. Uh, the Murder on the Orient Express, the original, not the new one that just came out, though that's quite a good film, too. Um, Time Bandits, Highlander, and uh, Just Cause also were in there. So, Well, let me say this about Sean Connery. Um, I liked him. In fact, I loved him <laughs> as an actor because I thought... You know, I grew up in, you know, in the, went to high school and college in the 60s and 70s, and he was the most beautiful man. I mean, he was just so handsome, and he had that deep voice. And I will tell you that he made James Bond. Of course, James Bond sort of made him as an actor as well. Um, but um, he was, you know, you just couldn't help but fall in love with him. Uh, and he was just sexy and handsome. And, and the thing is, as he got older... and he had that, you know, kind of grayish salt and pepper in his beard. And, you know, he didn't get any less <laughs> sexy or good looking as he got older. Um, and that was part of, you know, he, he, 
You know, that's part of what uh, I think may particularly women like him as a star. Well, and I the think. accent. And, well, that's it. The way he talked, that deep voice and that little bit of that accent that he had. And frankly, I think that's he was so suave and debonair as uh, James Bond. And, you know, there's all these things about always asking, um, who's your favorite Bond? Who was the best Bond? And the thing is... Um, you know what? Interestingly enough, I like all the actors who have been James Bond. There's not a single one that I didn't think did pretty well. But I just think Sean Connery established what Bond was. And um, all the other actors really, they gave it their own personality, but they also carried that on. I mean, and he was just iconic as James Bond. And, and it really started all the spy, you know, Cold War Yes. Uh, films and spy novels, and you know, it, I I just think um, that's his legacy for sure. And uh, Bond, probably the best Bond for sure. And uh, I think the new Bonds probably have a more prestige sort of style to them. But the, I think if you were ranking Bond movies, I think you'd pretty much put all of Connery's ones up there before you put the new ones in there. And it was sad to see him go. He hadn't really. He retired from acting in 2003, so uh, he hadn't been around, and he'd been living it up in the Bahamas before he... Well, he, well, I don't think he was living it up. He was 90 years old and sick. Well, yes, but he was living it up in 2003 before dementia oh, okay. struck. He'd been <laughs> yeah. living in the Bahamas for a while, but sad to see him go. But yeah. those were our top five uh, Sean Connery films. Uh, we have The Witches coming up on Friday, and... Uh, We'll move on to our next reviews after we see what movies have come out from there. GLN Champ 5, that's our show, and we're out.